Great. Welcome to another episode of Contemporary Philosophy Global Conversations on the MANA platform. MANA is the Saudi platform for culture and philosophy. And this week, we're, we have the great privilege and uh, pleasure of speaking with Agnes Callard. So Agnes is a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. Um, she's a very distinguished philosopher whose most recent book is called Aspiration. And um, I guess the full title is Aspiration, the, um, the Agency of Becoming, yeah, which came out two years ago um, with Oxford. Um, welcome, Agnes. Thank you. And my name is John Simmons, and um, I teach philosophy at the University of Kansas. So. Um, Agnes, we're, in your book, Aspiration, um, you distinguish between different kinds of aspirations and you, you locate a particular kind of aspiration that you see as particularly philosophically interesting and maybe philosophically problematic. And so I guess there's normal aspirations. So I hope to have a good conversation, make a good con uh, podcast. Um, maybe I aspire to run a mile in less than six minutes, et cetera. And these would be philosophically unproblematic aspirations. But you're pointing to a different kind of um, aspiration, maybe a, a bigger one, like where I'm hoping to become a better person or I'm hoping to become a, a different kind of person. So maybe, maybe you could say a little bit about the character of these aspirations and, and why they generate this philosophically interesting problem. Yeah, so um, I'm even willing to sort of, um, you know, say I'm going to use the word aspiration in a special way, right? I'm going to restrict it to a certain set of cases. The cases that I want to restrict it to are cases where um, the person is trying to change themselves in respect of what they value. So, you know, a lot of the time we're trying to change the world. We might be trying to acquire things, right? that wouldn't count as aspiration, though sometimes we might use the word aspiration in those contexts. Like I aspire to make a lot of money. I say, well, I'm gonna use a different word from that. I'm gonna use the word ambition there. I have the ambition mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. a lot of money. So I distinguish aspiration from ambition, which is like a large scale project that doesn't involve changing your values. You already know why you want money in the case where you have the ambition to make a lot of money. So that's not aspiration. And also changes in yourself that are small scale, right? Um, or that are not changes in what you value. Um, like I want to become healthier, right? That might not be an aspiration. Um, an aspiration is where you want to come to care about something uh, and you want it to become important to you. Uh, and that, that involves changing your desires. Like you kind of want to want to engage with it more, but it's also going to involve changing, you know, your kind of, um, cognitive relation to it like you're gonna understand better why it's valuable and also your emotional relation to it like you're gonna become the kind of person who gets sad in the absence of this thing right mm. so that's like a really big change in who you are to change your values uh, and that i restrict the word aspiration just over the course of my book to that phenomenon mm. okay so Take, for example, uh, you have the example of the uh, student, the music student, and she's um, in some sense unable to clearly articulate 
even for herself, you know, why she wants to pursue the study of music, or let's say the, the beginning philosophy student who has some sense for what a life of the pursuit of wisdom might look like, but can't really articulate that. But maybe in, given what you said, they might hope to have the kinds of values that let's say a connoisseur of music has or a, a lover of wisdom has. I mean, would that be, would that be correct? Yeah, those are great examples. Okay. And I would say, you know, what characterizes such people, among other things, is that they always feel a little bit pretentious okay. to themselves. I mean, they feel like they're pretending to a grasp of value that they don't yet have, right? So mm -hmm. they're like, what am I doing buying these books? I don't get what this is all about, you know, or I'm sitting here in this, uh, I'm going to this concert and like, I secretly I know I'm going to be bored through a lot of it right but I'm sort of pretending that I'm the kind of person who goes to concerts and I think yeah that's actually how you aspire you have to kind of fight your way through that pretentiousness interesting so maybe that's not always the experience of of uh, of these aspiring young connoisseurs right so it might be so you can imagine a case where it's it's not so much that I want to change my values um, I might just want to um, deepen my appreciation. So take, for example, all right, let's say I'm watching um, a, a movie and there's a beautiful aria, let's say a Puccini aria, and I hear the aria and it's, uh, it's um, um, the, uh, I'm thinking, I think it's Room with a View where it's Omeo, Babino Caro, right, uh, by Puccini. And I hear that and I, I'm impressed. And I don't speak Italian. I have no idea of the context, et cetera, but I, have a, I, I know I kind of like that. And maybe instead of this kind of revolutionary conversion of spirit, maybe it's more just a deepening of that, maybe initially very superficial uh, inclination towards opera, let's say, in that case. And, um, I know that I don't understand Italian, that I, maybe the, the narrative is alienating, but uh, maybe that's all I'm doing. So how would you, how would you help me distinguish that kind of desire for a deepening appreciation from this kind of more revolutionary transformation of my life? I wouldn't actually. Okay. Okay. I think that um, that is a case of aspiration uh -huh. and that, you know, as so, maybe a central thesis of my book is that aspiration takes time. It takes a lot of time usually, like years, right? And if you take a look at, you know, someone who's aspiring with respect to philosophy over many years, right? And you, you take a look at like a little tiny chunk, it's going to look like the story you just told. Okay. Um, so we don't transform that quickly. And, you know, the way it looks, if you sort of look close up at a short moment of it, is like you're trying to deepen in some respect. Mm -hmm. um, but over time, you know, <clears throat> one way to think about aspiration is just to think about yourself 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so like me 40 years ago, I was four. <laughs> I, can, I was a very different person than the person I am now. Right. But let's even just take me as a teenager. Like most of the things that I care about, I didn't care about when I was 14. Right. Mm. So that's a huge change in who I am versus who I was. Interesting. And, yeah. Those changes are all like, it wasn't an accident that I came to do the things that I'm doing. 
I had to work hard to become the kind of person who would care about those things. Yeah. And those are massive transformations, but they took a long time. And at any given time, what I would say is, yeah, I'm trying to deepen in this respect. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I wonder, uh, I'm, you're making me think of myself 40 years ago, so I would have been eight. And sure, I mean, I didn't know what philosophy was, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I, obviously, I, in some sense, couldn't have cared. Um, at 14, maybe things were a little different. Maybe there is more continuity. Um, so I, I wonder if, uh, if maybe we could think about, you know, what is it that's so philosophically challenging with this, uh, this transformation? So in, in what sense am I, I guess one way of thinking about it is that I don't know what it's going to be like to be the kind of person that I'm hoping to become, right? That could be one way to think about this. But um, maybe there are other kinds of philosophically uh, problematic or, 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 or interesting ways to, to, um, to think about my relationship to my future, um, future self in this case. I'd be curious to hear. So we have, in some sense, I identify with, my, with the reasons and values of my future self, right? Even though I can't fully manifest them maybe or so, and I guess this is what you mean by this proleptic reasons that, that you have, that your reasons are two facing, facing in, in two directions. So I'd be curious to hear how, how, how that parts, parts ways with sort of traditional ways of thinking about reasons and, um, and motivation and value. Yeah. And agency. So, yeah, mm -hmm. Do you think so? one of them will be on the proleptic reasons thing. But the other thing is like, what I think is most puzzling about the relationship between your earlier and your later self is um, that there's a paradox about self-creation. So I can talk about that too. Yeah. Just on the proleptic reasons first, that's, it, it's easier to see that if you think at the smaller scale, like someone who's gonna take a music class or something, right? So don't think of the, you know, 10 years, think of like- uh, um, A semester. Uh, yeah, semester, exactly. Um, so I think that, um, you know, the dominant way of thinking about um, practical reasons in philosophy is to think, right. roughly speaking, that you have a set of desires. Mm -hmm. And what you have reason to do is a function of those desires, plus the information that you have mm -hmm. about the way the world is, right? Yep. So you have to figure out how to satisfy your desires. There might be some constraints, right? Like moral constraints, you might think of those as other desires, you might not, right? But in any case, um, in effect, what you have reason to do springs from, um, you know, trying to sort of like fulfill the person that you are, fulfill the needs and desires and wants of the person that you are. Uh, and um, the, you know, what I argue in my book is that that conception of reasons, um, which I call reasoning from value, right? So what should I do given what I want um, doesn't cover the activity that you're engaging in when you're reasoning towards value, which is mm -hmm. to say when you're, you're sort of, your sort of goal is a different valuational state from the one that you're in. So you're not trying to satisfy the person that you are. In some sense, you're trying to satisfy the person you're trying to be. Right. Um, well, part of that is you're trying to become her. Right. And so what I, what I say is that, you know, we need a special kind of reason for that situation. That is you, you know, when you take that music class, you understand that it is not the thing that is most going to satisfy your current set of desires, like which mm -hmm. might be 
to like sit at home and watch a movie. That might be more fun. You might get more utility out of it, given what you currently want, right? Right, good. But you can also see that if you become this other kind of person, you're going to eventually get more utility out of music, right? And you want that. Um, so you want to satisfy the desires of the person that you're going to become. And so when you're, you know, when you're acting, what I say is that your reason for acting has to speak in some way to the person that you already are. It couldn't motivate you if it didn't speak to you at all. Mm -hmm. um, but it also contains a kind of consciousness that there is more to the value that you're going after than you currently grasp. So Good. you sense Good. the defect in your own grasp of the value. And that's right. part of the rationality of how you approach this thing. It's not like that's, you're unaware of that. Right. Um, so Good. that's what I call proleptic reason. Great, great. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I think that's very clear. And now with the, with the aspiration to become that kind of person, do we assume that there are sort of models? I mean, we sometimes call about, talk about role models <laughs> or charismatic figures that sort of lead the way towards this. Are, are they necessary conditions for, for the kinds of aspiration that we're thinking of here? I mean, do you have to um, have the ideal of a philosopher or the ideal of a connoisseur of music already in your, in your head, only partly understood? um ahead of time so um i haven't been able to produce like an a priori argument that says you always need that but mm -hmm. empirically people tend to need it yeah that is um one thing that's true about aspirants is that they don't know what they're doing not fully because some of what they're doing is trying to satisfy a value that they don't have right right, right. um and so what you're gonna see is that aspiration is gonna work better in a context that provides some kind of support for it. Good. Um, and, but there's a, a big variety of different kinds of support and it doesn't need to come in a specific form. So a mentor is one form. I actually have a paper on this novel by Elena Ferrante in which I argue that competition between peers can be mm. another form that mm. you can be assisted by someone else who's just as clueless as you, but you, you're sort of competing off of one another can give you each kind of like a way to guide and direct yourself. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, um, um, you know, a mentor is like a, a person who interacts with you. A role model might be like an ideal type, right? Like right. Achilles and the Iliad or something. Mm -hmm. That's sort of different from a mentor, but I think that's also something that um, can help people. Um, um, and, but, you know, if I think about like, did Socrates have a mentor? Like maybe Diotima in the symposium, the suggestion of that, right? But, um, but that's, I, I don't feel certain that I can say that um, these sort of forms of assistance are always necessary. It, maybe, maybe, maybe the point is someone who uses less assistance has to get pretty lucky. <laughs> um, so yeah. they, they pick up the luck slack. Um, I also even think that there are sort of like institutional contexts Good. in which aspiration yeah. can be, I think universities are mm -hmm. places of aspiration mm -hmm. and that's partly the whole institutional structure makes Great. that possible. So I think there's a lot of different kinds of support that people can get. Definitely. I think that's a really important part of your, of your, of your account um, that, you know, in some sense, there's all of the scaffolding that's uh, required for this. And this brings us to, um, let's say the relationship between philosophy and its own tradition. Um, so 
in some sense, we, we, we rely on the history of philosophy, at least the philosophical tradition, to, to give us some of that scaffolding, um, even if we're going to rebel against it or, or, or think about it in, in new ways. Um, and you recently commented that you think of old books, for example, as having the virtue of not being as charming, to use your word, as let's say our contemporaries or maybe contemporary uh, fads and fashions in philosophy, et cetera. And you seem to be recommending that students um, go back to what you call old books, presumably canonical texts in the tradition or, or at least texts that are removed from us in time sufficiently not to have that kind of immediate um, manipulative power. So, I mean, at least they're not as sensitive to what's going to manipulate me as my peers would be, let's say, or my immediate teachers. You could say a little bit about that. So it, it seems to involve, I mean, I like that, that insight, but also a, a trust in tradition in a way that um, I wonder how deeply you're committed to that. So I'm committed to it. I think that, uh, that it is important that people understand the philosophical tradition and uh, that they can find nourishment in that tradition. But I can see how many philosophers would rebel against that and think, well, you know, uh, a lot of what happened in, in traditional philosophy has been superseded by more recent advances or that we have more technical prowess today, and et cetera, et cetera. I'm curious to, to, to get your thoughts on that. I've said a lot, sorry. Yeah, so um, I guess one thing I would say is that um, there's a kind of um, um, there's like a kind of comfort that we have with one another um, uh, that's almost like when we live at the same time that's almost like the comfort we have with ourselves um, so like we are all amazing orators of ourselves we can convince ourselves of anything right I find myself incredibly convincing Hmm. Um, and if you're talking to me, I find you pretty convincing. Hmm. Um, and um, now why is that like, well, we do use all kinds of tricks. Like, um, here's one I've noticed. Um, there are words that kind of mean the same thing, but they have a different flavor. Hmm. Um, uh, so um, like, um, you know, I don't know, ruthless and driven or something, or, um, you know, uh, conformist and cooperative, right? We, we will use those words. We'll, we'll call someone a conformist when we don't like the way that they're cooperating with other people. And we'll call them cooperative when we like the way that they're cooperating. And when you first say this, people are like, no, 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 those mean different things. And I think like they don't really mean like they're, you know, a lot of the work there is being done by affect in a certain way. That, that's kind of quite modern. Like it's, um, I think you can go, you know, like we have a certain kind of antipathy to conformism that I think doesn't go back that far historically. Um, uh, and uh, that's like our idiolect. And so I can speak to you and I can get you to dislike something just by calling it conformism. <laughs> um, and like my choice of words and my choice of framing, right? Um, and I'm not manipulating you like any more than I'm manipulating myself, right? 
Um, but you go back to like the ancient Greeks, right? And they have these words like shameful that don't like have this immediate resonance for us. And we're like, oh, what does that mean shameful? And so uh, that, that, that's just one example of, you know, Plato in like the Gorgias when he's talking about whether like, you know, the, the, um, the pleasant and the beneficial and the um, noble are all the same or all different. Like he doesn't kind of have that ability to like push our buttons with words like um, cooperative and conformist. Um, he's at a kind of a distance that we have to think about his words. We're like, wait, what does this word mean? Whereas we don't, if someone uses the word cooperative to you, you don't, you're not immediately like, wait, what does that mean? And how do I distinguish it from conformist, right? You don't feel you need, need to distinguish it. So, mm. um, so that's the sort of thing I was getting at. Um, I mean, actually I think there are a lot of different ways in which um, people like, you know, in current times can, can sort of um, manipulate is too strong, but like, I can just use, I can just fill out my examples of aspiration or not aspiration with people I know you admire. I can use MLK in an example, and I can use Trump in another example. And that's, that's nudging you to like the one thing and dislike the other. But we're, if we're talking about, you know, Pericles and Mino and, you know, you're like, okay, these ancient guys, and some of them started battles. And like, I don't get upset when I hear one name or feel full of um, admiration when I hear another name, right? So that's yeah, a totally distinct way. I think there are a lot of different ways in which um, contemporary discussion can like push our buttons. Yeah, good. So I, I guess I get the I get the point about the rhetoric and that if you're dealing with uh, an author who's historically distant, then they're not going to be able to push your buttons as easily. But isn't there maybe I maybe I over overinterpreted what you were saying, but isn't there a sense in which you're um, counseling a kind of trust in tradition that uh, maybe or or is it just that you're you're um, you're assuming that you'll be able to think more independently, actually, in relation to traditional texts. It's not even that you have to trust them. It's just that they're venues for more independent thinking about philosophical questions. I, I'm maybe, maybe, uh, is that correct? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, so, so, so I didn't answer the, the, there were two more parts to your question. Mm -hmm. One of them was about trust, and then the third was about, like, haven't we surpassed these texts? Yeah. So um, the, the trust one, yeah, I think it's that um, what I'm saying is that as a matter of fact, you are trusting me in all sorts of ways right now when I'm talking to you. Like even just the fact that you're inclined to nod, right? Socially, yeah. like you have to nod when I talk. Yeah. That's helping me, right? As a, it, as a persuader of you. And it's so you know that Zoom hasn't frozen. So that's <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. But like Plato, when I read him, I don't need to nod, right? So um, I'm not okay. saying we can trust the ancient texts more. Mm -hmm. I'm saying we, as a matter of fact, trust them less. Um, good, and so um, they provide us with oppor exploratory opportunities that are otherwise unavailable. Good, good, good. So um, how about how about the um, the kind of charm? We, we'll leave the, the point about technical prowess, et cetera, et cetera, because that's not really that interesting. But how about the kind of charm that, um, certain kinds of older books have just in virtue of, I, I don't know, their, their cultural position or whatever. So, you know, we talked about our past selves, but, you know, for many of us in our past selves, we were really charmed by authors like Nietzsche or Schopenhauer for all kinds of bad reasons. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, there's also a kind of 
the location of some of these texts in tradition and the way they're kind of uh, enshrined and maybe some of their intrinsic virtues also, that they can be super charming and often in, in, in ways that their authors might have been baffled by, right? I don't think they would have been baffled. I still really? find both guys really charming. Okay. Um, but let's take Nietzsche. Yeah, good. I think um, cu culturally now, we have um, two um, kind of very basic ethical motivations that are in tension with one another. One of them is the desire to fit in and the other is the desire to stand out. The desire to stand out is what governs kind of our meritocratic system. People like you and me who are success stories in our society, right, was because we succeeded in something like that kind of a system. We got good grades. Um, we got into good schools, reasonably good ones, or, or, <laughs> or something, right? Yeah. We were assessed. Um, in order to make it to the next stage, we went to good grad school. People, Some people thought well enough of us to write us letters of a recommendation. We got papers accepted at things, right? So there's that, there's the kind of system we have of standing out. But then we also are like, um, deeply committed, I think, to a certain kind of community and equality and solidarity that kind of runs in tension with that desire, mm. um, where we think like, well, people are fundamentally equal and there's sort of something wrong with thinking of some people as better than others or as having earned their superior status to others, right? And we try all sorts of different things to reconcile these two desires. I think it's one of the, one of the most productive tensions in our ethical world is the tension between these two desires, okay? Mm. Um, and, but, but if you want to go to philosophy and you want to read about this problem, um, there is just one guy who kind of stood for the standing out desire above all else. He kind of gives you what is important about that in a kind of purified way. And that is Nietzsche. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, he appeals to teenagers who are for the first time thinking about like standing out and who am I as an individual as against my family as against my community. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's incredibly valuable that there's someone who does that and who does that for us. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he's just manipulating us. I think he is articulating the purified form of a certain desire. Now, I, I personally happen to think you have the other one super important too, and it's not just herd morality. We have to take it seriously and we have to fit you know, we have to take our own egalitarian impulses seriously. But still, so I see Nietzsche as having sort of spoken to that. Um, and sort of similarly, I think like um, Schopenhauer is this guy who thought um, he was a, like every philosopher pretty much thinks that everyone desires the good and that human beings move towards the good and that realizing the good is the basic motivation in life. And like Schopenhauer is like, wait, what if that was a mistake? Right? What if life is fundamentally structured by aversion, by movement away, not movement towards? And it's like, whoa, somebody had that thought. And that's incredible that somebody had that thought and developed a whole theory out of that thought. And that's why he charms us, like, because um, that's super original and interesting. And like a lot of philosophers don't have that thing, even if they're interesting, like they don't have that, that, that one kind of insight or thing that they grab onto and they hold onto it with their teeth through every point that they talk about. You know, someone like Aquinas is like the opposite. Like there's no thing there. <laughs> like like he, he may have a lot of virtues, right? But you can't find this thing. So I think um, though Aquinas has devotees, it's not gonna be of the, of the kind of devotee that like Nietzsche and Schopenhauer are gonna have. Mm, mm, great, great. 
that could partly be a matter of our current cultural context though, right? That, as you said, I mean, maybe the attraction in, in both Nietzsche and Schopenhauer does have something to do with our situation at the moment, that we're torn between this kind of, um, as you put it in another essay, um, humility and self-promotion. So maybe we could talk about that. There's a segue. So um, tell us about humility and self-promotion. So, um, you know, you and I are both in some sense committed to doing public philosophy. We both have social media presence, et cetera, and uh, we're not shy of being in public. Um, and yet, I think all of us value um, the virtue of humility that we, especially intellectual humility, that, that we can sort of uh, recognize our fallibility, etc. And uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about how you see that tension, which is similar to the one you described before, right? The, the tension between wanting to stand out and then wanting to be um, cooperative and uh, collaborative. And maybe that, that's something, I'd be curious to hear what you had to say. Yeah, so one thing I think about humility is that I think it's a true virtue and it's important, but it's it cannot be bought nearly so cheaply as most people think it can. So I think a lot of people think like you can just sort of like recognize your fallibility like by saying what I just said, um, you know, or how like every philosophy book has in its preface, like yeah, I'm sure there's tons of stuff that's wrong in this. And then that's supposed to be some kind of achievement, right? Um, uh, so I think that, um, meta recognitions of ignorance and fallibility are worth nothing. Um, they're, they're forms of arrogance, really. Like they're, 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 they're telling yourself that you've done some work that you haven't actually done. Hmm. I, I, let me interrupt you there, though. Yeah. So don't we think of all forms of, or isn't it, uh, well, maybe we're wrong to think this way, but maybe all forms of critical thinking, let's say, are in some sense a higher order cognitive reflection on, on what we're doing at the first order level. So it, it seems too strong to say that it's, um, that let's say my open-mindedness or my awareness of my fallibility is, um, is just a symptom of arrogance. You don't, I, I think that that might be too strong. Um. Here's what I mean. Um, okay. People, okay. I'm sure you know people who call themselves open-minded, but are not open-minded. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's like a thing, I and see. they're not lying. I see. Right? Like they're, they, they recognize a certain kind of possibility, right? Mm -hmm. In the abstract. Um, but that's not where the action is. Good, the action good. When somebody asks you a question, how do you think about their question? And I think for me, public philosophy actually comes into this. Um, so having to speak to a lot of different audiences means I need to rethink what I think and put it in a way that makes sense for those people where those are not people I'm used to talking to. Um, and I'm constantly driven back to the most fundamental versions of my own thoughts and being like, what's my simple thought? Like kind of the thing I was saying about Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, their genius was they had a simple thought. And if you wanna be a great philosopher, you have to have a simple thought. 
And, but in philosophy and academic philosophy, we're sort of driven to have complex thoughts that we express in a very technical language that we are comfortable with speaking to a small group of people in, right? Sure. And so I think what, you know, you could see as self-promotion in a way, and it is, um, is also putting myself in a bunch of different contexts in which I'm forced to like ask myself, do I still have a thought when I'm liberated of that? What is my idea? What is my basic thought here in like normal language? Um, That's great. And, yeah. So I think mm -hmm. like that the, and the feeling that that project is never completed, you know, mm -hmm. that I'm never really sure I have a thought until the next time I have to try to defend and explain it. Um, uh, I think that that's sort of a little bit closer to what Socrates meant, like by humility in the sense that it wasn't some kind of move you make and now you recognize it and you're done, but it's a kind of continuous process of conversation always with new people. Okay, good. So, I mean, it's it's interesting that you put it like that. I, one of the experiences in academic life is that we're constantly meeting people who are way smarter than we are <laughs> or have abilities that we don't have. And that's, that's also a kind of... Uh, it's certainly humbling and uh but maybe in a different way so so i think what you're saying about having to um having to present your simple idea in a way that other people or your important idea in a simple way is um that's that's really helpful and uh i'll i'll, I'll think about that um do you think you have a responsibility to self-promote? Um, I think I have a responsibility to improve myself. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm better, I'll deserve any honors that I get. Okay. That's great. So I think I have the responsibility to make sure that if I do get any honors, they're earned. They're for who I really am and not for maybe who I merely appear to be. Well, let's, um, there's a lot there and um, I've learned a lot. Um, can we say something about um, education and the tradition? And I know you're, I, one of the things that uh, you're well known for is your commitment to um, philosophical conversation. And you run this program at uh, University of Chicago that's, uh, that's gotten some attention. Maybe you could say a little bit about that and what motivates you there and what, what, uh, what you see as, as, uh, as the achievement of that program maybe or, or what you're hoping to get or do. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, for me, the core of like doing public philosophy actually is like that I'm the director of undergraduate studies and philosophy in my department and that that's public philosophy in the sense that I'm you know, introducing people to the major and talking to them about what it would mean to study philosophy and getting to know our students. Um, and, you know, I'm in charge of programming and this is Night Owls is the, maybe the, the first thing I started when I became the director of undergraduate studies. And it was because I wanted there to be some philosophy programming that like wasn't a class, but also wasn't like business. Like, how do you write a BA thesis? You know, how do you apply to grad school? Like we have those kind of things, but I didn't want us, our programming to only be that I wanted some of it to be philosophy. And, um, you know, it's a set of conversations. They're late at night. They're usually in person right now. They're online. Uh, 
in, where we talk about topics that aren't generally discussed in philosophy. So we, we did the philosophy of sex. We've done the philosophy of divorce. Um, we did one called economics versus philosophy, the battle for your soul. We've talked about like war and gang violence. Um, and you know, what I, what I'm trying to do is, and I'm often talking to people who are not philosophers. Our next, uh, our first one of the fall is going to be with this guy, Freddie DeBoer, who just wrote a book called the cult of smart. Hmm. Um, and it's about sort of how meritocracy is destroying education. Mm. Um, and he is like, you know, he's someone who's taught school at like every level and uh, is an administrator. And, you know, we're gonna talk about school and the kind of cult of achievement. And this, I think will speak very directly to the students. So, you know, the first year students are very likely to attend and they are thinking about, you know, what did I win by getting into the University of Chicago, right? And what mm -hmm. does that mean for me mm -hmm. in my life? Have, did I earn this, um, mm -hmm. et cetera, right? So some of these yeah. questions about standing out versus fitting in. Mm -hmm. um, so what I kind of want to show people is that philosophy springs from these sorts of questions. Great. Um, and that there is a kind of way that we've carved up the philosophical territory in our classes and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but there's also nothing kind of absolute about that. There's no reason why we can't ask these other questions too. And I think asking them and asking them at night, um, uh, surprisingly, it makes a difference when you do mm -hmm. it. It's more fun sure. if you do it at night. Uh, you know, will makes people feel like the borderline between philosophy and their lives kind of gets fuzzy. Excellent, excellent. Sounds really great. Your students are lucky. Um, so, I guess just to wrap up, then um, I generally ask uh, ask guests for their take or their view of, or their hopes for the future of philosophy. And so what, what would you, maybe we can combine that with, uh, with a question, a sort of more educationally oriented question here since we're on that topic. What would you, what would you tell a student who's interested in pursuing philosophy? So many of our viewers are going to be, um, novice philosophers or young people who are interested in philosophy who've come to it through finding mana and then um and and following these links what would you tell them as as aspiring philosophers um how could you uh, maybe help them see their future in this discipline so wait, let me let me say two things so Great. one very concretely i think um my own feeling is like the best thing that I did as an aspiring philosopher was find groups of people to talk with about books. <laughs> that is, as much as I love old dead books, they're also boring. And it can be really hard to motivate yourself and to be able to engage with them. But arguing with other people is like, for me, like the recipe for how you can become engaged with them. So find other people who are doing the same thing and find ways to connect with them and have assignments. <laughs> I think, mm. um, you know, when I meet with my students, one of the things I will meet with any student for any reason, um, but I like to have some reading, like to, to something to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, over the course of the meeting, I find is much more productive if there's the student has written something or there's some text that we're talking about. Great. So in general, I, I believe in both those things. Find other people and have texts that you're that you read. It can be a page. It can be short. Mm -hmm. um, more broadly, the future of philosophy. I have like, um, I have like both sort of pessimism and optimism about the future of philosophy. So I have some pessimism about 
the direction that academic research in philosophy is going. Mm. I, it feels to me like every year there is more of it, but the percentage of it I want to read is shrinking. Oh, that's a pity. Um, and so I think that somehow the system incentivizes very small moves in very abstruse areas that are increasingly just kind of pulling away mm. from the center. Um, and I'm worried about that situation and I don't, I don't have any thoughts about um, how to help that situation. I, I feel like it's, it maybe it's gonna just collapse at some point, kind of like how scholasticism did. Mm. Um, it has a lot of resemblances to that sort of, um, mm -hmm. uh, so I'm worried about philosophy in that way and I, and I mm. don't have thoughts. On the other hand, I'm incredibly optimistic when I just think about how much energy and interest there is for philosophy everywhere in the world at every level, I think it's yeah. unprecedented. I mean, the it fact is. that there's a New York Times philosophy column, like when I was mm -hmm. a teenager, I wouldn't have thought there could be such a thing, but there are all mm -hmm. these podcasts that so many people want to talk to me, um, that people who are not academic philosophers are reading my book, um, that I have a public philosophy column. Mm -hmm. uh, and my kind of, my kind of really optimistic long-term thought is like, I really think everyone should do philosophy <laughs> that should spend some time in their life doing philosophy. And maybe eventually we'll view it that way. Like the way we view literacy now, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like it used to be that like most people weren't literate and that wasn't mm -hmm. considered some kind of catastrophe. And now it's considered a catastrophe if someone isn't literate. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think philosophy is like that. It has that kind of significance and people are hungering for it. And what I'm sort of hoping is that we can take some of the energy that we're pouring into the research journal enterprise and kind of move it towards addressing this hunger and this interest in philosophy in a huge variety of ways. You know, it doesn't need to be one-on-one -on -one teaching. It can be um, podcasts, it can be writing of various mm -hmm. kinds, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I feel like, um, you know, if, if economists have taught us anything, they've taught us that this situation is going to rectify itself. Yeah, great. Fantastic, Agnes. That was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for your time. And, uh, and thanks to everyone for, for tuning in or for yeah, clicking. Or, okay, great. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.